Good morning. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Most common symbol of Christianity is the cross. People wear it as jewelry around their necks. They wear it as pins on their lapel. We've got it as the center point of our auditorium. But you know, it's become so commonplace that I think sometimes we lose sight of its impact. In the first century, the cross was a horrible symbol. Closest parallel today would be an electric chair. Imagine driving by a church with an electric chair on top of the steeple. Imagine listening to me speak this morning with an electric chair mounted on the wall behind me. Imagine singing hymns like, When I Survey the Wondrous Electric Chair. On a hill far away stood an old rugged hangman's noose. Beneath the lethal injection of Jesus, I fain would make my stand. At the firing squad, at the firing squad, where I first saw the light. Or there's room in the gas chamber for you. Sounds kind of silly, doesn't it? Well, Paul acknowledges that in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verses 18 to 25 in a passage that I've entitled The Foolishness of the Cross. And I want us to unfold this passage this morning in five aspects. First of all, the controversy. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now in verses 10-17, to Paul addressed the first problem in the church at Corinth. They were dividing up into groups and having controversy over personal preferences like which preacher they liked best. And in verse 17, Paul points to the cross as the unifying factor for the church. Because it's the only place where pride and selfishness are broken and where unity is found. But ironically, the only message that can solve controversy, the cross, is also the message that will continually fuel controversy because the cross is the place that divides mankind. People either hear the message of the cross and say that's foolishness, or they hear the message of the cross and they say that's the power of God. And those are the only two options. And your response to the cross makes the eternal difference between you perishing and you being saved. Now why do people find the cross to be foolish? Well, let me suggest a few reasons. Number one, because it's too personal. 
When I say Jesus died for you, the natural response is, I don't need anybody to die for me. I'm not that bad a guy. I mean, every once in a while, I need Jesus to give me a hand, but I don't need Jesus to give me His whole body as a sacrifice on the cross. You see, the cross of Christ underlines the fact that God is holy and we are sinners and we don't live up to His standard and so we are guilty before God. You see, the cross tells me that I have to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and not only a sinner, but a sinner who is guilty of the sentence of capital punishment. And so people say, well, the cross is foolishness because it's offensive to my self-righteousness. See, Paul in verse 17 says, I preach the Gospel not in cleverness of speech so that the cross of Christ would not be made void. Now since he said he didn't do that, I assume there were other preachers who did, and I know there are today, who stand in front of the cross and really block it, and by their cleverness of speech, they hide its significance. And people prefer to act pious and go listen to a preacher who will say fancy things that will hide the cross. Fancy things like, we're all God's children. Nobody's really going to perish. God's too good to do that. You don't have to worry about that. And so the first reason that people find the cross to be foolish is it's too personal. Secondly, it's too easy. People like to work for their salvation. If you, if you evaluate every religion that man has established, it all has one fundamental principle in common, and that is that man is earning his salvation. And we like that plan because we get the credit. But see, the cross strips us of all of that. Because the cross is the place where the Lord Jesus did the work that I could never do. And so people look at the cross and say, it's foolish because it's offensive to my pride. And then thirdly, it's too simple. All false religions start with ideas, philosophies, opinions. Christianity begins with facts. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you see, to, to, to understand that, you don't have to be educated. You don't have to be intelligent. You just have to believe. Human wisdom doesn't help me understand the Gospel. It actually hinders me from understanding the Gospel. Jesus said this in Matthew eleven twenty five, I praise Thee, O Father, that Thou didst hide these things from the wise and intelligent and didst reveal them to babes. A little child can understand and believe the Gospel. And so people say, well, that's foolish because it's offensive to my intelligence. 
So I have to come to the cross in honesty, saying I'm a sinner deserving the judgment of hell. And I have to come to the cross in humility, saying I can't earn my way to God by my works. And I can't learn my way to God by my wisdom. And verse 18 tells me that those who come letting go of their self-righteousness and their pride and their wisdom call the cross the power of God. Those who refuse to come call the cross foolishness. And that's the controversy. Secondly, we see the confirmation in verses 19 to 21. You see, the fact that the cross is considered foolishness is not a surprise to God. It was His plan all along. And Paul confirms that two ways in these verses. He gives us the prophecy and the proof. First of all, He gives us the prophecy in verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Now that's a quote from Isaiah 29, 14. And Paul is saying this is a prophecy about the gospel. The gospel will be such that it destroys human wisdom and it sets aside human cleverness. That was a prophecy that Isaiah made in the time of Hezekiah. It's interesting the timing that he gave that prophecy. Because at that time, Jerusalem was surrounded by the Assyrian army. And Sennacherib sent a letter ordering King Hezekiah to surrender. And as King Hezekiah was considering all of his options, he laid it before the Lord and prayed. You can read the full account in 2 Kings 19. God answered his prayer by sending one angel who slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers. Judah was saved by God's power without any of them lifting a finger. And God was making the point that He didn't need human wisdom. He didn't need human ingenuity. He didn't need human effort. He was going to save them with all of His power and none of theirs. And Paul is saying that when Isaiah said that, he was not only talking about their temporal deliverance, he was prophesying about the gospel and how God saves us. It's all God's doing and none of ours. You know, we naturally want to fight our battles and solve our problems. But just as Hezekiah learned, we have to learn that salvation is all God's doing. And that's what God promised to do through the cross. And that's why when Jesus was on the cross, He said, it is finished. He did all the work. And if we try to come in our wisdom, if we try to come in our cleverness, we will miss it. That's the prophecy. Second, He gives the proof. Notice verse 20. Where is the wise man where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? 
It's as if Paul is looking around the church and he's asking, where are they? Well, they're not here. When he gets down to verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. Is the church made up of smart people who were so clever that they figured it all out? No. The church is made up of dumb people who didn't have a clue. That's what he's telling us. And what's Paul's point? Look at the rest of verse 20. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now how did God make foolish the wisdom of the world? Well, he answers that in verse 21. Notice what he says. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God. God in His wisdom established the plan of salvation so that if people rely on their own wisdom, they will not find God. All of man's religion and education and philosophy and wisdom never saved anybody, never got anybody's sins forgiven, never got anybody into God's presence. That's his point. They never came to know God. Man in his wisdom can get to the moon, but in his wisdom he can't get to God. You see, man can't solve his own problems because he won't acknowledge the source of the problem, sin, and he won't acknowledge the solution to the problem, the cross. In fact, man is, God has made man's wisdom so foolish that he looks at the wisdom of God, which is the cross, and calls it foolish. T.S. Eliot summed it up this way in his book, The Rock. He said, all our knowledge only brings us closer to our ignorance. And all our ignorance closer to death, but closeness to death, no nearer to God. And then he asked the question, where is the life we have lost in living? You know, I often hear people say, I'm no theologian. Well, I beg to differ with you because you are a theologian. The word theology, ology means study, theos means God. Theology is just the study of God. So theology is nothing more than ideas about God. And everyone has ideas about God. Everyone has a concept of God. And so everyone is a theologian. If you're a human being... You're a theologian. So everyone is a natural-born theologian, but that doesn't mean that everyone is a good theologian. In fact, by nature, we are all lousy theologians. Let me show you something. Go to the book right before 1 Corinthians, Romans, and the first chapter.
verse 19. It says, That which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him or literally glorify Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. We are natural born theologians, but we are fallen people and so our theology is fallen as well. And he says in verse 22, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. What shape does our fallen theology take? It's man-shaped, bird-shaped, animal-shaped, reptile-shaped. Talk about foolish. When your concept of God looks like a man. When your concept of God looks like a bird. We have exchanged the glory of God for an image. For idolatry. And we are committed to idolatry in America today. You know the image most of us are committed to is a mirror? We worship ourselves. What do all these theologies have in common? Paul says in verse 21, they did not glorify Him as God or give thanks. But verse 23, they exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image. So Paul is saying that instead of giving glory to God, fallen man seeks that glory for himself. And that's nothing new. It began in the Garden of Eden when the serpent said to Eve, you surely will not die, for God knows that in the day that you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. You see, in all of his fallen theologizing, man seeks one thing for himself, and that is the glory that belongs to God alone. And that is the theology of man's wisdom. And Scripture tells us the outcome of that in Proverbs 14.12. It says, There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. And that's the proof Paul is pointing to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21. God has made foolish the wisdom of the world because in all their self-proclaimed wisdom, they haven't come to know God. And then the other half of the proof is the rest of verse 21. It says, for since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Who gets saved in God's plan? Those who believe God's foolish message. 
And who's that? Well, verse 27 says, the foolish things of the world. That's a reference to you. You see, you are the proof that wisdom isn't the criteria for salvation. How do you feel about that? While the wise are bowing to idols and glorifying themselves, the foolish are bowing before the Almighty God at the foot of the cross. The foolish are saying with Paul in Galatians 6.14, God forbid that I should glory except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Third is the confrontation in verses 22 and 23. Notice verse 22, for indeed... Jews asked for signs. Now this was characteristic of the Jews. They wanted external supernatural evidences. They were constantly coming to Jesus and saying, show us a sign. Of course, when they got the signs, they still didn't believe. In Matthew chapter 12 and verse 38, the Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus and said, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. But you're only going to get one sign, and that's the sign of Jonah the prophet. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. He was saying, the sign is going to be the resurrection. And when the Jews got the sign of the resurrection, what did they do? Matthew 28 says they bribed the soldiers to say that the disciples stole his body. Jews asked for signs. Look at the rest of verse 22. And the Greeks search for wisdom. The Greeks were very proud of their wisdom. They had Socrates and Aristotle and Plato, guys who have, who have still hung on in our day. They required rational evidence. They wanted it to be logical. They wanted to be able to understand it. They wanted to be able to debate it. So he says, Jews ask for signs, Greeks search for wisdom, verse 23, but we preach Christ crucified. I think if Paul was around today, he'd have somebody kind of take him aside and say, Paul, you know, you really want to target your audience a little better than you're doing. Because you've got the Jews out here looking for signs, you've got the, wis- the, the Greeks out here looking for wisdom, and you need to really put a little more wisdom in your message. You've got this simple message, it's just Christ crucified. And you keep preaching it over and over again, and it's really not meeting the needs. You're not really being sensitive to your audience. Paul says, Jews ask for signs. Greeks are looking for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Why? Because that's the only answer. And when you preach Christ crucified, guess what? It leads to controversy. Look at verse 23. We preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block. You see, the Jews were looking for a Messiah who would come and perform great signs and overthrow Rome and reign on David's throne. And Paul was saying, 
You remember that guy hanging on the cross? He's your Messiah. And they said, no way. He's too weak. The Bible says in Deuteronomy 21-23, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Our king could never hang on a cross. And they stumbled over Jesus. And we see that attitude in Peter in Mark chapter 8. Peter's looking forward to the kingdom. In fact, every chance they got, the disciples were arguing about who was going to be first in the kingdom. And Jesus stops them and he explains to them how he's going to die. And Peter takes him aside and rebukes him. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's interests. Why does he call him Satan? Because he was wanting to take the glory from God and give it to himself. Man's theology. And then later in the garden, Peter takes out his sword and cuts off Malchus's ear. He's going to start the revolution. And Jesus puts his ear back on. And he says to Peter, I could call 12 legions of angels if I wanted to. Don't you get it? This is the plan. I'm going to die. And finally, Peter gets it in Acts chapter 2. And he's preaching, and this is what he says. God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jews stumbled over Him. And then the rest of verse 23 says, and to Gentiles, foolishness. These Gentiles who wanted to celebrate their wisdom and their knowledge and their intellect saw the cross of Christ as foolishness. In Acts chapter 17, when Paul came to the city of Athens, he started his message by talking about the unknown God. They had a God, just in case they missed one, they had a God to the, or an idol to the unknown God. And Paul wanted to preach about the God that they didn't know. And he preached and they listened to him until he got, up, got to the part about Jesus' death and resurrection. When they heard that, they mocked him off the stage. You see, if you're going to be faithful in preaching Christ crucified, it's going to be confrontational. Fourth is the confidence. Verse 24. But to those who are the called, that is called by God, chosen by God, both Jews and Greeks, we come out of both groups, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. To those who are called, to those who are saved, you see, the Jews look at Jesus and they stumble over Him. The Gentiles look at Jesus and they say, that's foolishness. But I've been called by God. I have come to faith in Jesus Christ. And you know what? Christ is not a stumbling block to me. He is the power of God. And Christ is not foolishness to me. He is the wisdom of God. 
Now, I'm not smart. I'm not extremely intelligent. In fact, I would be afraid to take an IQ test. Somebody asked me the other day, what did you get on the ACT? I said, 18 in the city, 22 on the highway. I'm not smart, but I know what the wisest people in the world, with all of their intelligence, will never know. I know Jesus Christ, and he is the power of God and the wisdom of God. And I didn't arrive at that by my wisdom. I got here because verse 24 says, God called me. And verse 21 says, I believed. And then fifthly, we see the comparison in verse 25. There are two kinds of wisdom in this passage. There's God's wisdom and man's wisdom. And the question is, which are you going to bank your life on? And it's really no contest. Look at verse 25. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. The most foolish thing that God could ever think or say or do, which happens to be the cross, is wiser than the most profound thing that man could ever think or say or do. And God at His very weakest, which also happens to be the cross, is stronger than man at His very strongest. And you know, as I'm reading that, and even saying that, it sounds absurd. Because it's such an understatement. Who would ever have the audacity to compare himself to God. And then I thought, well, that's really what man in his wisdom does. He says, I know better than God does. God's plan is foolishness. God is weak when he hangs on a cross. And so Paul steps down to that level and he makes the comparison. God on a bad day is better than you on your best day. What an understatement. There are two kinds of wisdom. The question for you today is, are you going to trust in the world's wisdom and view the cross as foolishness and perish? Or will you put aside your own wisdom and humble yourself and place your faith in Jesus Christ and be saved. It all comes back to the cross. Verse 18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. I'm going to have Jeff and Lane come up. They're going to sing a song in closing. It's a song that asks the question, what can take a dying man 
and raise him up to life again. What can heal a wounded soul? What can make us white as snow? What can fill the emptiness? What can mend our brokenness? And then the answer comes, mighty, awesome, wonderful is the Holy Cross where the Lamb laid down His life to lift us from the fall. Mighty is the power of the cross. And as they sing in closing this morning, I'm going to ask us to stand. And as they're singing, I'm going to ask you to join your hearts in the declaration that the cross is the power of God. And if you can't do that, then I invite you this morning to come by faith to Jesus Christ. To humble yourself and come to the foot of the cross. Because there is room at the cross for you.